You're listening to MedEx, the Medical Extrusion Podcast, presented by U.S. Extruders. Extrude with confidence. Custom extrusion equipment designed for you and your application. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the MedEx Podcast. Today, we have two guests from Flexan. Chad Kowarski, Senior Project Engineer, and Chad Freestone, Director of Engineering. Flexan is a global contract manufacturer involved with custom silicone thermoplastic components, subassemblies, and devices. We also have a guest host on this podcast. My friend Mark Bonifacio will join us. Mark is a subject matter expert in silicone molding. Enjoy. Uh, thanks for carving out some time to meet with us on the MedX podcast today. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Let's get right into it. I know you have a lot of experience in both thermoplastic and silicone extrusion. And, uh, you know, barium stripes used for visibility under X-ray and fluoroscopy. Tell us a little bit about the difference in barium stripe tubing as it relates to thermoplastic extrusion and thermoset silicone extrusion. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, they're kind of similar. You have to have a second extruder or a co-extruder in order to inject that stripe. Um, but with silicone, I think it's a little bit easier. A lot of the silicone striping tools are able to be um, implemented into an original crosshead. When you go to thermoplastics, you go to a crosshead that actually has a striping head. So it's a little more expensive. It's a little bit more detailed, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. um, where with silicone, you usually are just adding a, a striping tool into that existing crosshead to get that stripe flow path into the rest of the silicone flow path of the tube. Okay. One of the interesting topics I wanted to talk to you about is the loading level of barium. And I know that's typically depends on where the device is within the body. What can you share with us about the loading level of the radiopacifier, barium sulfate within the body or maybe against soft tissue versus against bone? What can you tell us about the loading levels? Well, so um, with the loading levels, there's a couple things you got to consider in the design of that, right? If you've got a smaller tube where your stripe is going to be smaller overall in size, you're going to need to increase that barium loading to get a good visual in the x-ray, correct? Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the things you got to consider in the design is kind of weighing out based on the size of the tube I'm working with, what kind of loading will I need? Then once you get in to the body and now you're trying to see that device within the body under x-ray, if you're going to be next to bone which shows up well in x-ray, you're going to want to have a higher barium content so that it'll be bright enough to see it in contrast to the bone. Versus if you're in the soft tissue, you can get away with a lower barium loading and still be able to visually see that fine and, and see that location of your catheter device as it's being placed. Okay. Interesting. I noticed the encapsulated barium stripes, sometimes there's one stripe three stripe, six stripes. Why are there redundant stripes? Why is it necessary to have so many stripes in some cases? Based on the use of uh, the catheter or the device, um, there may be different reasons. Um, in some cases, multiple stripes are there maybe to give you more density so that if you've got stripes lining up one in front of another as the catheter's rotated in there, you'll get that increased visibility. 
Another thing that it can give you is if you have a very nice structure of a tube, you can see under that x-ray with multiple stripes, it allows you to also see if there's anything going on with, say, a pinch mm -hmm. or, say, if the tube had gotten twisted or something. You would actually visually be able to see that if you've got those multiple stripes within the tube versus if you just had one stripe, right, that's mm -hmm. on one side of the tube. Okay. I know in minimally invasive applications, composite catheter shafts, the, the radiopaque additive, whether it be barium, tungsten, is pre-combat pounded in with the base material. And so the whole shaft has visibility. Can you share why you do stripes versus compounding, you know, having the whole tube radiopaque? You bet. Yeah. And a lot of the procedures that are done, say if a nurse is going to be drawing blood or she's putting medication in or, you know, there's different things that are going through these catheters as far as media. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that procedure, it, it's very helpful if they can see what's happening. They can see fluid motion. So the fully barium-filled catheter is always going to give you the, the best radio opacity in x-ray. But based on the actual functionality of the device, there may be cases where you really want to be able to see what's happening inside of the tube and be able to see media moving. So that's the cases where stripes are much more of a good use for the, the device, where that allows them to have a clear section where they can see the media moving. Mm. It gives them just a better visual and can help with the actual procedure in many cases. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for that. I wanted to ask you, because your experience in thermoplastic and silicone, when we're extruding thermoplastic tubing to size the OD or ID, there's a couple strategies, right? We're either adding internal air into the dye or we're using vacuum sizing. I know in silicone, you can't vacuum size it. How, what strategies can be used to size the OD or ID of the tubing? So Steve, with uh, silicone, yeah, it, it's a little trickier, right? You, you can't use just a vacuum tank like we do with thermoplastics. Mm -hmm. But you can still kind of take that technology from the thermoplastics as far as the ID control with air. So you can buy an air cabinet. You can modify, if you have to, your crosshead a little bit to be able to implement air up through the, the crosshead and into your pin. And that way you can allow uh, yourself the ability to make some adjustments there, right? Because usually you're just mechanically moving tooling to kind of make those size mm -hmm. adjustments for ID. That gives you the ability to kind of make those quicker, easier, simple adjustments. I think you probably know this or have had people that struggle with this. Like when you start up a, a silicone extrusion line, a lot of times it's collapsing that ID. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to cut it and kind of open it. And sometimes you can break the line doing that. This just makes it maybe a little bit simpler too overall to run it. Whereas you can just adjust some air, have that air from the get-go of the startup to help keep it open as you're pulling it up over. Say if you're doing a, a vertical extrusion where you got to go mm -hmm. up over a tower, because a lot of times it's hard to keep that open as you're going up and over that. It, it makes it much easier if you can just add that air right from the get-go, keep that ID open, and then you got way better controls and adjustments on the fly while you're running. Can that air in that case be set up for closed loop control of OD so that the gauge is giving feedback to the air pressure controller to increase or reduce air to maintain OD. Yeah. Yeah. You could tie it back just kind of like we all do with, you know, tying back our pulley speed to help adjust, right. To the yep. OD. 
you can close loop that ID in as well and use the same type of controls to send a signal to give it a little bump up in there, a little bump down and, and help okay. maintain that automatically. Yeah. Okay, good. Hey, Chad, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Great. I wanted to ask you about one of the cooler things that I've seen in silicone extrusion, and that is transitional extrusion, where you're changing the geometry on the fly. Yep. Tell me a little bit about the capabilities that Flexan has related to transitional extrusions. The, the main one that we do at Flexan is it goes from a three lumen to a two lumen. The reason why is that the OEM is putting a spring within it to cause the silicone to be uh, more rigid as it's being inserted into uh, intestines for a feeding tube. So they're putting a spring in after the fact and then doing a dispersion on the inside of it in order to in increase its rigidity. Now on the outside, they wanna use one of the lumens as a flushing lumen and the other as the feeding lumen. So um, if you're having something like that that you wanna change the profile, but maintain your outside OD, it's an excellent use for it. Okay. So I know that silicone could be ultra soft right? And that's for, you know, less traumatic uh, on the patient and for other reasons. But along with that comes the tackiness, right? Related to silicone tubing. Yeah, definitely. One of the big drawbacks of silicone is its tackiness and its ability to collect uh, dust and not be cleanable. What we've developed is a methodology to treat our tools after the fact by sending them out to another tool event of ours and impart a texturized surface finish. Um, and what that allows it to do is slide over itself or over other items much easier by reducing surface contact. Okay. Are those like micro level um, surface finishes? It's just in the thousands. It's detectable. You can definitely feel the ribs on it. It's not so small that you can't tell it's there. Okay. Does it affect fluid visibility? It doesn't really disguise it in that way. It does make it a slightly more difficult to overmold on mm -hmm. because you're changing the outside shape. I'd rather overmold onto a, a smooth finish in order to get the most surface contact than this. And it would also, depending on how you're overmolding, your uh, shutoffs is going to be affected by it because mm -hmm. I'd rather shut off metal to a solid finish than metal to uh, geometry. Okay. I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. What we're going to do now is transition to the second part of the podcast that'll be hosted by Mark Bonifacio. Thank you. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. And uh, Chad, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, I guess we'll jump right into the molding side of things with LSR. And maybe we can talk about overmolding as it uh, pertains to silicone to silicone, there are so many factors. Uh, you're looking at durometers, uh, different, obviously, geometries, the tooling. Maybe you can just talk about some of the challenges. I mean, for some people that don't know that silicone, you know, kind of flows like water, uh, mm -hmm. right? And we, we know what kind of a challenge that brings. So maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the applications that you're doing at Flexan, maybe in terms of durometers, some of the challenges, and, and, and maybe some of the products that they go into. We've developed for end-of-the-line patient use uh, silicone to a connector. The most difficult thing with doing overmold of silicone to silicone is the shutoffs. Right. right? On how you're compressing the silicone to 
create the shutoff to overmold? Are you shutting off so much that you're getting a pinch point? Or if you're not shutting off enough, you're going to blow back your tube. Are there some rules of thumb or do you, you know, kind of cheat up on it kind of thing? Or You got to cheat on it. You want to start tool safe and then just expand on it until you're no longer getting witness marks on your tube. And talking about the durometers, are there any specific rules of thumbs? It, I mean, of course, it's easier with certain durometers, but are you working across the range or are you trying to limit and direct customers to certain durometers? No, honestly, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really that concerned about it, Mark. I don't know if you've seen anything that has really changed the silicone to silicone, but no, I've been working in, in like the 60 durometer and uh, been effective. Right. What about one of the things that I worked on when I did some silicone overmolding is the challenges with some of the mix between a mechanical bond and, and kind of a, a, you know, a chemical bond or, or, or surface treatments or things like that. Are there any, any tricks of the trade or anything you guys are doing in regard to I'm, that? All, all the time I'm trying to work a customer to doing both. Uh, I, right. You know, you, right. you give me mechanical and uh and a chemical bond, and I'm going to get you good adhesion. Um, right. If you don't, yeah, there, there could be issues. We'd always like to work with a customer early on in their design process so they can let us influence how they're going to achieve that bond. Right. I know it gets, sometimes it gets difficult. I know one of the challenges I had, Chad, is we got to smaller and smaller stuff, right? Yeah. And you're working with less surface area. It gets challenging. That's great. Uh, thanks, Chad. You know, what about as we as we go to like maybe going from silicone onto like a metal or something um, in that regard, what, what is, is there something you're doing in terms of the preparation of the substrate there? Like, you know, if it's just a rough finish to the metal or is there some surface preparation or what are you doing in those applications? In those applications, we'll, we'll use a primer if possible, mm -hmm. uh, if, if the customer is allowing us to do it. Right. What are the applications? Like, give me maybe an example of what are these products or what medical devices uh, have the combination of, uh, you don't have to give me specific, but maybe just what uh, types of tools or what types of products are you making that require metal and silicone? Is it IV stuff? Is it surgical tools? Is it all of the above? Or A little bit of that. Yeah. We have surgical tools that yeah, they're using silicone as an insulator during cauterizing of, of, of blood vessels. We have other parts that are implantable devices that they have metal substrates and they're wanting silicone on it. And others yet are outside the body just used for tube management. Right. So you brought up a great topic, Chad. Maybe something we can touch upon is uh, I believe, you know, the silicones are kind of grouped into the long-term implant or, or something that goes in maybe over 30 days into the body and then the shorter-term implants. Are, are you guys dealing in any particular? I know most of the applications are obviously under 30 or just kind of skin contact. Is there any particular uh, thing that you guys are working on uh, regarding? No, to I mean, we'll do, uh, we'll do fully implantable silicones and just surface contact under 30 and uh, outside. Uh, going back to the material selection, there are so many silicones now, like you said, from the long term, the short term, the different durometers, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things, maybe stealing on some of the question from earlier. Are you compounding some of these materials? Are you just buying them straight from the suppliers like Vacker or Momentive and, and, and just, you know, using the materials as they come? Is it a little bit of both? Is it all over the place? Uh, what's what's most yeah. customers looking for? 
I would say it's all over the place. I mean, we'll do whatever the customer's interested in doing. For the most part, from an LSR standpoint, yes, I'd rather just buy something off the shelf than I can put on a tube. But we do compound, we do pigment matching in order to match what a customer would like. So it's all over the place. Right. One of the challenges that I found in, in some of my experiences is when early on, when we're prototyping, like in the silicone environment, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, when we're doing production, sometimes we're getting things in 55 gallon drums and, and, and the material handling. Maybe you can talk about some of the differences in the prototyping and how you handle maybe some early stage uh, development. What's difficult is, are you getting a production mold or are you paying for a prototype mold? Uh, there's a big difference. What kind of steel am I going to make it out of? Is it going to be fully hardened? Do I want to put you on a book mold that I can actually test out my different characteristics? Or do I want to put you uh, on a horizontal press that I can make a ton of parts on? Uh, those are the big differences when you're coming to prototyping, like how much upfront costs do you want to put into this mold? If you're fairly confident that you're going to go into full production, go into the horizontal mode right away. Uh, right. Don't don't bother with the, the book mold. But, you know, if you're prototyping, sure, we can do, you know, we'll do them in uh, a book mold with a lower cavitation. Right. In in a vertical setting. Is that what you're saying? And some yes. of those would be done that way. That, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yes. E excellent. Um, you know, maybe while we're on uh, this subject, let's go to the, you know, maybe the other end. What are some of the um, secondary operations maybe that uh, I, I know, you know, we try, obviously, when we're doing silicone overmolding or whatnot, we want it to be flashless. We don't want any secondary operations, but it does is there, you know, deflashing or is there, I know this cure, post-curing sometimes involved. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the secondary operations, if there are any in some of the products that you're working on. Yep, there are secondary operations, large production volumes will automate depending on what a customer wants using robots to punch or visually check for flash we will go all the way on some customers doing flashing by hand if that's what's needed now what about the post curing oh, uh, yeah i'm sorry I forgot. yeah all, a lot of products i would say 90 percent of our products require a post cure Right. Um, and, and maybe you can explain to customers why that's necessary and why we do that in silicone. And of course, it's not really uh, common or commonplace in thermoplastics. Maybe you can explain. For the most part, if it's a one piece, what you're doing is driving off the peroxide. So it's not blooming with the two piece. It's kind of historical that they're doing it um, is my understanding of it. Um, otherwise, what you can do is manipulate the durometer slightly um, right. by longer post cure times. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's kind of been baked in and, and a lot of medical customers want to see that like curing that they yeah. say at like 100% so they believe that it won't happen on the shelf and they want to accelerate it, you know, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Chad. Thank you for listening to MedEx, the medical extrusion podcast presented by U.S. Extruders. Please subscribe to make sure you're getting the latest episodes. For video episodes, go to us-extruders.com forward slash podcasts. All links are available in the show notes.